You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Thursday, July the 28th, the third day of the Qatar Goodwood Festival. I hope you enjoyed yesterday's edition. There'll be more comments on that interview with Peter Savile and the premierization of racing in a few moments' time. But we must start today with the um, devastating performance, another devastating performance from Baid in the, in the Sussex Stakes yesterday, extending his winning sequence to a perfect nine for nine. Uh, Lydia Hislop was working with me on Racing TV yesterday, and she is with me now. Uh, Lydia, so much has been um, talked of in the last 12, 20 hours or so uh, about Baid, much of it rather damning him with faint praise, and particularly um, talking about where he sits in relation to Frankel, who mapped roughly the same path in his final season as a, as a horse, as a racehorse. Um, why must Baid suffer by comparison to Frankel? I, I don't really get it. I don't get it either. I think we should be celebrating the best turf horse in the world as he proceeds through at the moment unbeaten and is now heading towards a new frontier of an extended 10 furlongs at York, which is exciting. I'm not um, decrying uh, people who, ha- who put numbers on performances. You know, I do think it's important for historical context. And uh, it, I mean, we made the point, didn't we? We discussed yesterday on Racing TV, Frankel, after his devastating Queen Anne performance, was rated 140. Uh, Baid took a rating of 128 into uh, the Sussex Stakes yesterday, and I doubt he'll be upgrading it as a result of, of, of that performance. Um, but there's still lots of potential in Baid. He remains the best turf horse in the world. He is unbeaten. He, 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 he goes about his wins with a, a lot of charisma. He's starting to pull himself up in front. I mean, he, he's also, there's some elements of similarity with Frankel. You've mentioned the, the campaign element, but also I think we're going to see how Sir Henry Cecil in um, Frankel's uh, four-year-old year was having to manage that balance between uh, being a a horse that is increasingly turning his mind towards being a stallion as opposed to being a racehorse. And I think we saw that with Baid. And I saw it firsthand for the the first time yesterday when he kind of burst into the pre-parade ring, a, a total handful. His groom was barely being able to hold him. He was cultish and he was really difficult in the pre-parade ring and then the moment he went into the paddock he clicked into professional mode and that's how he conducts himself the moment he's in that but William Haggis said in an interview afterwards on Racing TV that that's the Baid that he and his team know behind the scenes and it's a case of skillful management and I think this is the kind of thing we ought to talk about a lot more because you could see in Frankel's last race in the champion stakes the way he started that race you could see that the whole idea of racing was beginning to pale on him and it is the skill of the handlers to be able to um, focus these elite athletes' mind on the sport, which is um, such a a primary skill of what we then get to enjoy in the race course. And because poor old Baid has to suffer by comparison to horses who've won races by a dozen lengths, people don't really take stock of what he's achieved and how he's achieved it. 
um, by using by using the times. And Angus McNay monitors sectional times for Racing TV. Was on duty yesterday. Angus, you've had a chance to to study the the, the sectionals, the split times of yesterday's Sussex Stakes. What do they tell us about what Baid did? Uh, morning, Nick. Um, well, I started with the overall time, which was one minute thirty-seven point seven four, according to course track sectionals. Um, which is a good time. It's not an outstanding final time, but it's okay. Crystal Capella uh, was just under a second slower on day one, the only other race run over a mile on similar ground. So um, it's not a spectacular final time, but it's how that time was achieved that we can work out from the course track sectionals. And what they're telling us is that this was quite a steadily run race. The visuals said that they were going steady because the likes of Chindit were pulling quite hard. And Barat Leon took them along quite steadily early on, well over 12 seconds for the early first four furlongs. I can cite you some of those, 12.29, 12.93, 12.41. They weren't going that strong. You'd expect them to be going closer to 12 if they were going to be running a more evenly run race. So what that meant was it turned into a bit of a dash, a bit of a three-furlong sprint. And what we learnt about Baid from that three-furlong sprint is that he is very quick. And those clamouring for him to run at a mile and a quarter have a legitimate case to make. But he is a fast horse, and a mile undoubtedly suits him. So he was a good deal quicker than modern games through the final three furlongs but what the sectionals can do is we can boil those final three furlongs down even more and if we look at his penultimate furlong the furlong when jim crowley said go 10.7 seconds and that's very quick at the end of a mile race he's shown a sharp turn of foot here to win i'll give you his last three individual furlongs 11.2 quickest in the race 10.7 quickest in the race and his final furlong was 11.31 whilst being eased a little bit in the closing stages so this was a sprint nick uh they crawled to halfway they then sprinted for three furlongs and the finishing speed percentage of 109.74 tells us that he finished the race off 9.74 percent quicker than he ran the rest of the race so you'd expect that figure to be nearer to 100 in a in a in a properly competitive group one mile race he showed a really good turn of foot he's better than the bear result uh, he could have won by further in a more strongly run race in my opinion so that just gives you a little bit more more context there and lydia it's made me have a little bit of a rethink as to whether the automatic assumption that he'll be better over further is is correct yeah, I must say I have my doubts. I mean, and, and at the same time, I totally applaud and think it's brilliant that they are trying a new frontier. And those two concepts peacefully coexist in my head. I think connections should be totally applauded for the fact that they're just not going to stick to a mile for the entirety of this horse's career um, and make, you know, swimming in the same division, meeting the same horses, increasing the likelihood that this horse will be unbeaten. I think there's too much of a fetishization of of the unbeaten racehorse. I'm much more interested in the racehorse who tries new things. Clearly on breeding, you know, there's a, a very strong case. He's by see the stars, he's stayed a mile and a half. He's a full brother to Hookham, who we know is top class at a mile and a half. The dam, Agarid, won over 10 furlongs, including at 
listed level. And there is more on, I mean, as, as Sheikh Hissa was, was talking about, you know, that the family on the dam side of things it goes back to Nashwan. Um, so we know, we know that there is stamina imbued all the way through the pedigree. Um, also, the way in which Jim Crowley, I think, has been riding him, particularly uh, yesterday, but also maybe the time before as well, is with potentially one eye on stepping up to 10 furlongs. And obviously, William Haggis is preparing Baye for that new test. So I've got an open mind about it. I, one thing I'm not open minded about it is how exciting it is. I'm absolutely made up my mind on that. It's very exciting. It is. Uh, and he'll then, we assume, go to the champion stakes. There have been a few mutterings that maybe the arc might be a, uh, under consideration. Well, if, if we, we think that he might be best at a mile, then a mile and a half really is stretching. But he, it's certainly something that we ought to kind of kick around, isn't it? Well, it does depend on, on what happens at York, doesn't it? Um, that will be key to what the next move is, whether it is the arc, whether it's the champion stakes, and whether conceivably it's the QE2 again. Um, so that those options remain open and the quality of what he does in the international stakes will dictate that. But again, we've just talked about the pedigree, you know, on paper, a mile and a half is not, is not a daft idea. You, you mentioned people's fear of, of getting horses beaten. I, I did detect that a little bit in William Haggis yesterday when you were interviewing him and he mentioned the next two targets and the sort of anxi that anxiety over the, over the possibility of getting him defeated. It did, it did bother me a little bit. I, we saw it with Henry Cecil, didn't we, at the end of Frankel's career. It, it's, it became a thing. He, he mustn't be beaten. Um, and yet I, both, I sort of get it. And yet, and yet they both conquered that fear and tried a new thing. Mm. So, you know, that, that's, that's great, isn't it? Um, you know, yet, yes, they, they, they have the fear and, and, and William does have that concern in the back of his head. Um, but he has overcome it and is willing to try, try a new thing. And it's something he said for a while. Also, he was trying to counsel himself under the guise of counselling Jim Crowley uh, that, that they should enjoy this because there's only a couple more uh, races left in Baid's career. And the likelihood is that they might not encounter him. They might well do. I mean, they're both you know, top, top flight operators in their own spheres, but that, that they might not encounter a horse of this quality again. Uh, don't don't you remember when when people were trying to get Cecil to do all sorts of things with Frankel? It, it, it was well. Can we can he get can he take on Black Caviar? I'll drop him back to six <laughs> furlongs. Do you remember that one? Well, I, well just... I mean the analysis, the tie, the section analysis of the Queen Anne says yes, he could have done actually. Um, I, I know, of course it does. He'd have won anything. Uh, yeah, that, that's the thing. That's why <laughs> but, it's so but, ridiculous to compare any horse to him because he he would literally have won anything apart from the Grand <laughs> National, maybe. But the the thing I, I really do think it was underestimated during um, Frankel's career when people was bli were blithely saying, do this, do that. I mean, you saw what he did in the 2000 Guineas and in the St. James's Palace Stakes and the start of the Champion Stakes in his very final start. All of those things point towards a horse who temperamentally, mentally had to be harnessed in the proper manner. And I don't think it is an exaggeration to say that I... That, that horse, I don't think, would have achieved the same things in anybody's hands. I think that that was a much more finely tuned, finely balanced, intricate pro project that it looks from the outside when you look at his unbeaten record. Yeah, I would agree with that. I remember interviewing Cecil at the July course, right in the thick of all this, on a fairly rainy day, and saying, oh, why aren't you going to do something different? Can't you drop him back to six and take on that caviar? To which his response was... Um, you're not the only pebble on the beach. I've got a man waiting from CNN and off he walked. <laughs>
But you know, as I say, the, the clock the clock says yes, he could. Yeah, indeed. Um, so Baid for the Judmont International next, and then we think the champion stakes at Ascot, but who knows? And the beauty is that he's around for a little bit longer. Um, yeah, and he'll make a fine addition to to Shadwell's stallion ranks. Elsewhere, yesterday, Lydia, there were a couple of pretty scorching performances from two-year-olds over five furlongs who each broke a track record. Well, one broke the track record and then the other one broke it straight away. Um, and it could well be that the latter of those two horses ends up in the Nunthorpe at York, which could feature a few two-year-olds, I think. That's right. The Platinum Queen won the Alice Keppel, which is a conditions event for fillies over five furlongs. Richard Fahey trains as Sheen Orr was on board. And obviously that's the further cementing of quite a significant partnership between those two people. Um, but Tom Palin, representing the owners Midland Park Racing, was there. And he was talking about how going into Goodwood, he was toying between running the Platinum Queen in the Molcombe or this conditions event. Given the profile of Platinum Queen, he decided that the conditions event was the better stepping stone. Um, he was thinking about the Roses stakes at York, you know, fast five furlongs, that's clearly going to suit, but it is inverted commas only listed level. And he was also talking about entering in the Abbey, which is against older horses, obviously on Arc Day um, in, uh, at Paris Longchamp. But he also threw in the intriguing possibility that she could get a supplementary entry for the Nunthorpe. I think it, he thought it was about £40,000 to supplement. I haven't checked my numbers, but that's what he, number he came up with yesterday. And so that's something for the Midland Park team to discuss and what a great discussion to have. And, you know, they're all getting, as a filly and a two-year-old, getting all of those allowances. We discuss it every time that, uh, that such a horse tries to, to do it in the Nunthorpe. Um, it is a very enticing prospect. And Trillium, even though her course record didn't last very long, her two-year-old track record didn't last very long, she was inexperienced and I thought, I thought she was a nice filly and, and, and there could be quite a bit more to come physically from her. There's, quite often I can feel mildly disappointed with the Malcolm. I don't feel that way about, about this one. Um, I think Rocket Rodney is a very professional two-year-old who just it, it is increasingly giving his running very well. I think Wallbank ran very well and he, I think, has got more to give. Certainly Ross Orion thinks he has and can see himself turning around that form with Rocket Rodney. Trillium, however, everybody seems to concede, was on another level. And it's interesting that she was dropping down to five furlongs for the first time. She's shown a burst of speed over six to win at Newbury and Lesser Company last time and she just looked very very good indeed here and afterwards Richard Han and her trainer was talking about going to the Morney um, and uh, even the Breeders' Cup juvenile sprint so some really ambitious plans for Trillium and uh, you know I felt that she went won quite comfortably um, I wouldn't assume you know she wasn't all out or anything like that so, uh, she looks very exciting and I think there will be there'll be more to come from her. Yeah, that Breeders' Cup race, that juvenile turf sprint, it's been upgraded this year. It's, a, it's got um, top-level status and it's got a prize money boost. So I think it's a million dollars in a grade one. So, oh, wow. So much more of a target then. It would be a much more of a, It would be an incentive in, a, um, in alignment with one of the, the longer races. So. And they, the owners took uh, Skylantern, didn't they, to the longer race and then it, she didn't have any luck in running and came back and, and won the guineas. A, a bit of business from yesterday. Kieran Fallon got a two-day ban for... Um, swearing at a fellow rider on the way down to the start. This has been a classic uh, clickbait story, Lydia, hasn't it? It has. I find these stories a little tiresome, I have to say. Um, the Racing Post have uh, duly reported it, of course. Uh, Kieran Fallon has said that he said, uh, what the F did you do that for? 
Um, whereas Marcus Guiani, who's, uh, at whom that sentence was aimed, said that the incident was nothing to be worried about. The view was that um, Guiani um, should have pulled up Soft Whisper on arrival at the start in yesterday's Oak Tree Stakes, that Group 3 over 7 furlongs, and Fallon's Mount uh, Happy Craft played up at the start and that Fallon felt that it was Marco Guiani's uh, fault to some degree. That's what we are told about the incident. But of course, it is only the stewards who will have heard the full evidence here. They would have had Kieran Fallon, what he fully had to say. They'd have had what Marco Guiani fully had to say. And they had the evidence of a vet who overheard what was said and they gave evidence as well. So I'm always, I mean, I, I know there was that incident involving the, the finger pointing, the famous finger pointing between Paige Fuller and Lorcan Williams in the heat of the moment after a race. Um, and they got a four day ban immediately afterwards, which was reduced on appeal to mere caution. So I'm not saying that um, stewards aren't, aren't, wouldn't, couldn't necessarily overreact. But if you look at the rules under J21, violent or improper conduct, um, improper conduct um, is where verbal only uh, gets up to four days um, for for a jockey. Um, uh, that is the sort of the entry point. So actually, it was dropped down to, uh, by two to half to two days. So there is provision in the rules to deal with um, issues such as this. And we we haven't. I mean, we may think we've got all the information, but I think better place to have all the information was the stewards, and that's the conclusion they came to. And if you know, Kieran Fallon feels that's unfair, then he has the opportunity to appeal. Why are, you, why, why are you so sensible? I mean, you know, that's not what people want you to say when they're listening to this podcast. They, what they want you to say is, it was a disgrace. <laughs> In this day and age, are you not even allowed to say what the F are you doing? Well, more than anything in this day and age, no, quite often, no, you're not. In many people's uh, jobs, you know, code of conduct, that would be an, uh, be an infringement. So, um, you know, uh, but what we, you know, what we are lacking is context. Good job we, don't, don't, we don't have all the evidence. Good job they don't hear what you say to me during the course of a broadcast, isn't it? Touche. <laughs> uh, all right, Lydia, thank you for the moment. Going to turn our attention briefly to this afternoon, the Gordon Stakes, which is normally a stepping stone to something like the St. Ledger. But for one candidate in this race, uh, targets further afield are very much uppermost in the mind of the trainer. That trainer is James Ferguson, who joins me now, and the horse is Deauville legend. James, you're thinking further afield, aren't you? Well, he, this horse is actually a gelding, so he can't run in the St. Ledger anyway. Um, he is um, potentially, he, he's, uh, there's, there's potential to, to maybe go to Australia at the end of the year, but it's completely up to the owner. The owner has a lot of horses running in Australia. He's a, he's a big international owner, especially down there and in Hong Kong. Um, but that would be completely up to him, depending on how we get on. So it's a, if he goes down under, would you still, would you still train him? That would not be up to me. That would be up to you. I would. I would obviously love to. Um, you know, we've we've. I've. I've been down there as an assistant, but haven't haven't been down there as a trainer. And so you you understand what it takes to to win races there, and and clearly there's that that great pattern of races in the in their spring are are awesome. Would you see him as the type of horse that could could run in say a Caulfield Cup and a Melbourne Cup? Absolutely, I think he could certainly go there and run in both. Um, he, you know, I don't want to. You know, I don't want to jinx anything, but he does. You can see in the in the, in the um, how he ran in the Bahrain Trophy. You know, he he did relax very well, um, and he travels for fun. But he also has a turn of foot, which I think is very important down there. So, um, you know, I certainly think his his his, uh, 
he has the, that he is that caliber and um has the has the qualities to uh to run big internationally and also you know he's a big boy he's a hardy hardy horse you know i don't think traveling would be an issue and, and why was he gelded in the first place he was um he was a very cultish two-year-old um and you know can just happen with some horses um mentally they just they just need a bit of gelding to uh, to get the best out of them um caused us a bit of problems uh, not going in the stools once at Nottingham last year and um you know that for me was enough you know he he, he was his first first two starts he, he he made everyone at the races know that he was a cult and if a, if a filly walked by up past him he he made sure that everyone knew about it so um it's certainly um you know it was certainly required and you know we don't do these things these things lightly uh, but i'm very glad we did and it's not as though um it's it's not as though this is a this is a, a first run in patent company but it is another edge up in terms of opposition that he's meeting today how confident are you that he can put up a bold showing Look, we have to be realistic. It's it is a harder race than the Bahrain Trophy, um, and we carry a three pound penalty. You know, we we. But I think he's a big enough, good enough horse to be able to handle that. You know, we uh, we have to be realistic. Realistic as as you know, we're 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 fourth favourite for a reason. We're coming up. We're coming up against some some very good proven horses. You know, for example, the second in the Derby. Um, you know, Grand Alliance, Western Blows, New London. They're all very on ratings. There. They're very, they're, it's it's a good race, um, and you know I'm I'm just hoping we can go there and run well. I think I think we you know we are battle hardened. We're in we're in good form. We're coming off the back of a good race. Uh, we handle the ground, um, the form of Ascot. You know you can argue that we ran a you know we ran a good enough race to potentially win a King George when he came second by a nose of Ascot, and that horse came out and won on um, won at Goodwood this week, Secret State, and almost threw the race away in doing so, so it could have won by further. So, the, you know, the form has been franked, um, and we're going with plenty of confidence. But on the other hand, I just hope he goes there, runs well, and comes back safe and sound. Right, let's talk about Peter Saville and your thoughts on um, the interview I did with him yesterday and the, the overall pr- uh, premise of premierizing British racing in order to prevent the perceived drain of horses away from the country and in order to bolster general levels of fan interest and punter engagement in the sport. Okay, first of all, I said I don't think it's a perceived drain. I think it is an actual drain. And I am broadly supportive of that. I'm certainly supportive of the, of the diagnosis. I think it's a massive and pressing issue for British racing and have felt so for some time. I'm interested in what he's put forward as solutions. I'm pleased that somebody is trying to put forward a strategy to address this subject. Um, I thought it was interesting that the he's saying that more races is good news for owners of lesser horses because there'll be more opportunity to win and fewer races is good news for owners of better horses because there are less opportunities to win but more money when you do so. Um, I suppose my concern is how much of an incentivization it is to reduce the number of races for better level horses to win. Uh, that, That would need to be well judged and I would hope it would be the kind of thing that 
uh, would be constantly monitored. And if you saw a, a positive from it, that you were getting more competitive racing and more horses were staying over here and there was a, a benefit, then there would be facility to expand the number of those races at the top. I thought it sounded like quality weekdays were under threat um, with more of the better races being moved to Saturdays. Uh, I'd need to understand more information about that. Also, the, um, the more races at a lower level, you know, he was talking about 15 or 16 runner races and becoming more like 10 runner races. Will that have a, a negative impact on betting turnover? I suspect it will be okay, but I, I'd like to see the figures of that. I'm glad he's addressed the point that um, smaller race courses or race courses that aren't part of a, a bigger group um, don't have the opportunity to put on some of these uh, better fixtures because I think you wouldn't want to ghettoise uh, uh, racecourses with ambition. I'm thinking of places like uh, Pontefract or or Salisbury. They need to be able to be um, part of the party. Um, I was interested about um, not being afraid to clash with Ireland and France, particularly on a Sunday. Peter Saddle yeah. said, of course, we want to clash with Ireland. For the horse racing fan, that might not necessarily be a, a net good thing. I understand that purely on a turnover basis for British racing, it's a good thing, but we have to think a little bit more internationally than that. So I think that would need to be done uh, skillfully, I think. Um, and I would essentially, you asked the question, well, how are you going to get this more money? And so it was by um, increased terrestrial coverage, which begets increased betting turnover, also changing the levy structure from being gross profits into, um, into a turnover-based system, which is what uh, British Racing wanted when, when the whole um, landscape was changed by government in terms of betting tax in 2001. Um, that, the problem with that is it, it, it basically still comes down to um, bookmakers being asked to pay more or passing on their extra payments to punters. So it's, there's no magic solution here. There is only that pot of money, which made me think about where there might be other pots of money. And I started thinking about um, government tax breaks and um, some form of levy on sales houses, she said, frightening the horses. I can hear the stampede across the Serengeti right now. Yeah, I, I suspect that's not going to be massively popular uh, with some of our regular, <laughs> with some of our regular contributors. Well, let me let me just make let, make the case because I think it's it's a case of self interest as well for them as well. Um, I mean, the, the horse racing and bloodstock industries are symbiotic. I don't think anybody would 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 disagree with that. And um, at some point, the sales companies based in Britain are going to have to be concerned that if there are lesser horses, lesser stallions standing here, lesser mares here, lesser horses being bred, lesser horses going into training or being sold at an early stage, then their medium to long term business doesn't look as good as it does currently and has done in recent years. And so um, is there some form of help? Uh, levy uh, arrangement that, that is that is palatable and helpful for the racing industry to make sure that it continues to make the uh, bloodstock industry as it is based in Britain a thriving long-term viable prospect uh, obviously the sales companies say well, well we contribute to racing via um, sponsorship 
my response to that would be that is what the bookmakers say and I don't think that really gets at the issue as I say I think there's a, a self-interested element in this as well and with the government tax break I mean obviously if you look at Ireland they are uh, greatly supported by um, governments and I know that recently Chris Philp who is um, the minister responsible for gambling um, who, is, uh, who has written the white paper that mm. sat on number 10 Downing Street's de desk and is still gathering dust at the moment I, I know that he had been talking to the to the racing industry and the feeling amongst the racing industry was that he had grasped um, what a medium to well short term these days but medium to long term threat the diminishment of the British bloodstock and racing industry would be in terms of taxation to governments in terms of employment in the country the actual impact that it would have on Britain and that this is the kind of conversation that government can grasp and that that would be they can be persuaded to do something about that and to move quite quickly in those circumstances so for me those are a, a couple of areas to to explore but I was pleased to hear what Peter Saville had to say and I also like the fact that he was honest and made the point about Plumpton you know where where he is uh, he knows a lot about that that uh, race course when you were talking about race courses and he yeah. was making the point that actually Plumpton and race courses like that did perfectly fine during Covid it was actually the top race courses that host our top class sport were the ones that suffered during that period because they didn't get attendances and i welcomed that mm. honesty because i yes, think it's been lacking in this conversation i, I was going to say that candor has not been evident amongst quite a lot of small uh, independent race courses during the course of that period or indeed uh, smaller race courses run by larger conglomerates uh, just or the rca or the rca and that, you know i understand at the time i mean generally everybody was was thinking well if we're going to land the levy argument then we can't say that we did perfectly well thank you during covid we'd better take those loans being offered by government because it doesn't sort of fit in with our levy argument well i mean they're two separate arguments that was nonsense uh, oh on that point about um about the the white paper just a little bit of a little bit of um inside knowledge this week reached me that it, it did get perilously close well not perilously close it got very close well actually i think it was perilously close given how 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 what in the state of flux political flux we're in at the moment um to to appearing last yeah that's my that's what i heard too it, as you apparently the secretary of state for department of culture media and sport the great nadine dorries wanted to leave it as her legacy but somebody somebody sensibly decided <laughs> that it, it needed to be just take a take a pause well ta yeah right. take take a breath and of course I mean, um dorries and chris philp the outgoing gambling minister are both trussites aren't they they're both uh, yes Yes, exactly. So, you know, this, this, this remains. But uh, at the point I made to Tom last week on this podcast, you know, there has been little talk about social issues, has there, in the um, leadership campaign. The focus has been very much on taxation. Mm. And uh, I, I can't see uh, with either person's argument, Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss's argument, something that negatively impacts taxation as sort of sitting comfortably with the arguments they're making. But I mean, you know, <laughs> uh, reason and logic uh, has, has been lacking uh, for many years in, in uh, uh, British government. So who am I to suggest that those two things do not peacefully coexist? Mm. Just don't faint when you're on air today, please. <laughs> Thank you.
All right, this afternoon it is the Magnolia Cup, the charity race for female riders. We spoke to Ashley Wichard the other day. Uh, the most uh, extraordinary story is that of uh, Omira Rusika, who first started on a horse uh, in Zimbabwe five years ago, the beginning of her quest to be a jockey. She's faced uh, enormous adversity in her life, having lost both her parents at a very young age. But she was inspired by Michelle Payne, the first female rider to, to win the Melbourne Cup. And she's now uh, riding out here in the UK for Rafe Beckett. And she's been telling Flora Gibbs how the opportunity to ride in the Magnolia Cup came about. So I had known Khadija Mela from Facebook. Mm -hmm. So I was, well, she blew up the internet when she won the Mogon Cup and stuff like that. Hell yeah. So I got interested in the story and then I sent her a friend request and she accepted. And the next thing she messaged me, she messaged me and then she was like, no ways, you're a black girl riding horses. I was like, yeah, I am. <laughs> <laughs> like it was just the two of us, you know what I mean? Like, oh, you've been riding a race. I was like, yeah, what a fool, yeah. Yeah, true. And then, that's how we became friends and then she was like oh i wish you could come to england and i was like you know at that point you're like mm, yeah, yeah it, it, it might be impossible so where <laughs> were you at this know, point i was still in south africa then um, okay and then um that's when she was like um i wish you could come here and you could ride in the magnolia cup and i was like ah, maybe i need qualifications to ride in the magnolia cup mm -hmm. i really didn't say it to her but i thought maybe i need to finish my apprenticeship and ride in the magnolia cup yeah. <laughs> that, that was that was what was running in my mind so the minute she knew that i'm here in england and then she messaged me again and then she's like i'll call you in my five minutes and then i we had a chat and she's like, oh, the charity race has been run in July. Do you want to end? I said, yeah, of course. Why not? Mm -hmm. And then she's like, okay, I'll give them a message and I'll get back to you. Mm -hmm. And then a month later, I get another call from her. She's like, go, I've entered you in the Magnolia Cup. I'm like, no way. No way. <laughs> no way. She's like, yeah, you're in. And like, there's, there's a girl who had an opportunity of working overseas, I think. Yeah. And uh, they, had, they were looking for another replacement. She's like, yeah you go go you better start doing your squats now you better start building your plank <laughs> <laughs> so she kind of acted like your agent basically <laughs> yeah so, so the next thing i'm going for these all fitness assessments i'm filling out all of these forms and i was like okay it's happening it's happening what does participating in this race mean to you then well it means quite a lot to me i cannot even put it in words like um I've, I've always dreamt of riding in the UK as a jockey and now here I am, yeah, of course, riding in a charity race, but it's a massive, massive life changing. It's, it's, it's a game changer. It's one of my goals that I'm about to achieve at the moment. Because mm -hmm. like I said, I'm quite open-minded, win, lose or draw. The fact that I'm there on a horse on the race course, it just means quite a lot. Mm -hmm. Well, all the very best to Amira Rasika talking there to Flora Gibbs. So if you were with me on yesterday's podcast, you'll have heard me talking to Anthony Oppenheimer about Golden Horn moving to pastures new. He's going from Dalham Hall in Newmarket and he's moving to Overbury Stud where he'll be looked after by Simon Sweeting and his team. He's been bought by Dash Grange Stud's Jane McGiven. If you're thinking that name sounds familiar, it's not all that long ago that Jane hit the headlines by purchasing the dam of, of Constitution Hill. So Golden Horn could still cover flat mares, will mainly cover jumps mares, you'd have thought, or a, a, a perhaps a mixture of both. Jane joins me on the line now. Jane, it's not everyone that steps into the the, the stallion business. Um, why have you done it? Um, 
firstly, uh, I've been actually looking to buy a stallion for some time and um, was waiting for the right one to come along. And when I heard about Golden Horn, I simply couldn't let him leave the country. Um, and um, I actually have a mare in fall to him, build me up Buttercup. Some of you may remember mm. her as, a, as an awesome racehorse. Um, and so when I saw him, I knew that uh, he would be a fantastic dual-purpose stallion. And it was just a question of hoping that I might get the opportunity to buy him. Um, and, and I think we need new money and new blood and a bit of a shake-up in the stallion game. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's become a little bit of a monopoly with the big boys, and that's not any disrespect to them at all. Um, but uh, we have much more diversity and much more choice and much more um, operation operational choice as a small stud or a large stud if we can keep the really good horses within the uk um i think it's very good for british breeding it sounds as though you might just be starting out it might be might be just scratching the surface and that you might be looking to get into the 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 stallion business big time is that is that right never say never nick that's all i can say (laughs) i mean i'm delighted at the moment i've got some fantastic i've got three fantastic broodmares um, and uh, I have um, Golden Horn who I think is one of the most exciting young stallions in the UK. Uh, I'm still pinching myself that I I managed to own him um, and I have to thank Dali and Mr Oppenheimer for giving me that chance. It's really good of them. What do you think, what do you see in the horse that makes you think that he remains commercially interesting given that he's had as, as Anthony and I were talking yesterday, a, a sort of good-ish career as a flat stallion, but not breaking through with those absolute top-notch performers that he needed to be an elite flat stallion. First of all, I think he is a dual-purpose stallion. He's getting some great results over hurdles. I think he had his first chase winner with um, one of Fergal O'Brien's horses this week. Um, and um, I think he's got a great opportunity, a, a great future with National Hunt uh, uh, mares. And... Um, including my own. Um, But I don't think he's uh, busted flush on the flat by any stretch of the imagination. He was a fantastic racehorse. His confirmation is perfect. He's the ideal model of a horse. Um, And I just think that sometimes you have to be lucky and sometimes uh, it takes a a few years for you to see what's in front of you. And I point to Nathaniel for that as as an example um you know there are people a few years ago who were writing him off and and look at nathaniel at the moment he's producing some of the best flat horses in the uk yeah i said yesterday on on racing tv the the law of sod will dictate now that he uh, he'll, he'll he'll throw a derby winner next year it's still, i hope so that would be really good um it it would certainly be a testament to your to your faith in the horse, um, Jane. D- tell me a little bit more about D- Dash Grange. I know you're standing in with, with Simon Sweeting at Overbury, an established stallion station. Tell me about a bit more about your own stud and what you're hoping to develop there. Um, my own stud is, uh, is a family stud, um, which basically means me and my husband. And I started it simply because I couldn't... I was going to buy three-year-old stall horses to race as racehorses for myself and the ones that I liked were making three and four hundred thousand pounds and I thought that's quite risky for uh, an unproven um, stall horse. Uh, I'll breed my own 
So um, my idea, well, I started by thinking, I'll just get a couple of mares. This will be great fun. It's not a commercial operation at all. It's still really not a commercial operation. I'm just hoping that it wipes its face. Um, and then I thought, I need the very best quality mares that I can get my hands on. I bought Jalan, who's a full sister to Jetski. I bought Build Me Up Buttercup, who I think was an awesome racehorse, who, by the way, I think could produce flat horses herself. Um, and then, you, as you mentioned, I've recently bought uh, Queen of the Stage. How could I let that one pass me by? Um, underbidders on, on some of the uh, other more famous mares, Apples Jade, and um, put the kettle on. And I probably have space for, for a couple more mares. But I have no ambition to build my operation at home beyond that. Um, and I certainly don't have the expertise to stand a stallion myself. Um, and I was so delighted that Simon Sweeting was so enthusiastic about standing Golden Horn for me. And had he said no, I wouldn't have bought the stallion. Um, Simon's operation puts the welfare and well-being of all of the horses in his care first and foremost with everything he does. And for me, that was the most important thing. Simon will manage Golden Horn and I will be guided by him. Um, and I'm close enough that I can be a pain in Simon's neck by popping down the whole time. So <laughs> I hope you'll forgive me that. Uh, yeah, I think you deserve to be forgiven. Jane, thanks so much for your time. Look forward to catching up soon. Um, and I look forward to speaking to you about another stallion in the future. Mm. Thanks, Nick. <laughs> All right, thank you very much to Jane. Lydia is still with me uh, and has a tip for you. Curveball, five furlong handicap, Nick. Oh, not a staying race? No. 4.45 at Goodwood today, Le Beau Garçon for uh, Mick and David. I'm used to be... really sorry, but I've tipped it. I've done oh, it. no, have you? <laughs> and frankly, my tipping is so bad this week. It's, I mean... <laughs> Things have got to change, you know. You know, okay. it, it, you know this, 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 this is the turning point. This okay. is the turning point. I thought it shaped really well for five furlongs at Newmarket last time. Time before, desperately unlucky at Musselboro. Clearly uh, better than his mark of, of 83, and I think this is going to be ideal for him. Cool, Lydia, thanks so much. Thank you very much for listening. I'll be back to do it all over again tomorrow. Um, and I hope you're enjoying Glorious Goodwood and the lovely weather. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.